We continue now in working through Mark's gospel, and we are now in the 11th chapter. in which our Lord Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem before His death on the cross. Mark chapter 11. Let us pray and then we will read together. Our Father, every portion of Thy Word is holy and we should uh, tremble with humility and, yes, with joy because of what Jesus has done for us on whatever page we find it in Holy Scripture, but to come to these these chapters at the end of Mark almost leaves us speechless as we read them and think about them and contemplate something of the depth and wonder of what it meant that God in the flesh journeyed to the cross and shed his blood to redeem us from our sins. Work within our hearts and souls. Work in the hearts of those who do not know thee. To be drawn to the Savior, work in the hearts of those of us who believe to continue to be drawn, called all the way to our heavenly home, in light of what Jesus has done for us. Illumine the page of Holy Scripture, and as we enter into this section all the way to the end of the book, over these next weeks, if we are given grace so to do, may we again marvel at the wonder of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark chapter 11, we're reading the first 11 verses. This is the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, 
as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, in the passage that we have just read, in Mark's gospel, the Passion Week begins. Now, children, the word passion means suffering. He has suffered all along. God came into this world. He has suffered all along. But this will be the high point of his suffering, the week that transpires in which he is led to the cross to die for our sins. And we call this section the triumphal entry, and so it was but it might not be precisely what you would expect or perhaps even think. What was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem? Let's attempt to look at this from several different perspectives this morning in answering that question. What was the triumphal entry? Well, first of all, it was a kingly entrance. This is the entrance of the king, the Messiah, into his city. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. This is his peculiar city. And approaching Jerusalem near the villages of Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, but Page probably being on the slope of the Mount of Olives. Jesus tells his disciples to go and to bring this colt that will be tied. In Matthew, we read that it was the, the a donkey, and that relates it to Zechariah 9.9, upon which no one has sat, because it is set apart for a very sacred and very special use. God has purposed this. God has planned it. And so they go. The Lord has need of this. They bring it. And it seems in verse 7, the disciples place their own garments on the donkey as a saddle. And Jesus enters Jerusalem and the crowd brought and cast. Actually, there are two historical presents here. The, they are bringing and casting garments on the road and branches in front of him on the fields. And then down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus moves into Jerusalem with a crowd behind him and the crowd that is ahead of him eventually meeting in this great crescendo of praise for the one who now enters. Hosanna, which means save now or save pray. And imagine the exuberance of it all. They're shouting portions of the 118th Psalm, referenced by Deacon Fasaro before the service. It was sung by us as our opening hymn this morning. It was read by Pastor McNeil and the rest of us in the early portion of our service together. So they're shouting from Psalm 118, and that psalm comes up again later in Mark, where the stone rejected becomes the cornerstone. Oh, but they quote that psalm without reference to Isaiah 53. 
they quote that psalm, most of them, without recognizing that in order for him to be the headstone of the corner, in order for this praise to be offered to him, he must be first the suffering servant of Jehovah. And many here undoubtedly will change their tune and will be among those who will cry out, crucify him, crucify him, as we move on in this book. They wanted an earthly kingdom. We read here in verse 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They wanted the kingdom to come. This earthly kingdom but more on that later. The passage stresses the fulfillment of prophecy. The passage comes right after the healing of blind Bartimaeus that we saw last week. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Clearly a messianic recognition. It's set on the Mount of Olives associated with the coming of Messiah. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so it is read, as the Messiah is entering on the fold of an ass and bringing peace, and indeed he did bring peace, but it's peace through the blood of his cross. The spreading of the garments could take us back to 2 Kings 9.13 with the, the inauguration of Jehu. This untrained foal is a reference to Zechariah 9, the singing of Psalm 118. Whether or not the singers understood it, Mark clearly wants us to understand Jesus is the Messiah who will be rejected but will become the head of a corner. So it's the entrance of the king. It's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is the fundamental significance of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. The Old Testament scholar Franz Delich said, Christ throughout the Old Testament is in the act of coming. Now in this passage, the point is, he has come and he will go to the cross. Delich also says, that he compares the Old Testament and the New as winter anticipating the coming of spring. Well, spring has arrived, but spring will only bloom and blossom through the blood that is shed on Calvary's cross. The goal of prophecy, the summit of Old Testament history, is now being fulfilled. And what should our attitude be, believers, as we enter into these verses this morning? Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Exult, daughter of Jerusalem. Who of us can remain untouched by the announcement that the Messiah is entering into Jerusalem? The King has come, and He has come as we know. We have read the remainder of Mark's Gospel. We have heard the Gospel preached. We have received it into our hearts. We know that He came to Jerusalem to bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners like us. But not only was Jesus' entry a kingly entrance, it was secondly a misperceived entrance. That is to say, what did the crowd by and large understand? They did not understand what Mark wants us to understand and what Mark is conveying about the Messiah who came to redeem us from our sins. 
though some few may have understood these things and have seen the connection with Jesus' Messiahship and may have seen relationship to Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament. Most did not. They did not understand the fundamental significance of Jesus' entry nor of Jesus' Messiahship. The crowd did not understand. The disciples do not yet clearly understand. And maybe some were just honoring the prophet of Nazareth as he comes and they're singing Psalm 118, simply singing it with patriotic intent. Again, in verse 10, we are told the kingdom has come. That's why they're singing. That's why they are praising him. And how did the crowd, by and large, understand the kingdom? Not as the coming of God's saving rule through Christ Jesus the Lord and all that was connected with it, but they would have understood someone who would come and who would take from them the yoke of Rome, remove their rule, displace all of Israel's enemies, And if Jesus is viewed by many in the crowd this way, they soon will be bitterly disappointed because Jesus has not come to fulfill their views of the kingdom of God. He has not come to fulfill their views of Messiahship. Mark wants us to see more. But at this time, the crowd and even the closest associates of Jesus do not see, though the disciples are being brought closer and closer to understanding. We've read in Mark 8, in Mark 9, in Mark chapter 10, three times how the Lord opened to them the fact that he would go into Jerusalem for the purpose of suffering, and he would go to a cross, and he would be raised on the third day. But right now they don't understand it. Do you remember back in John chapter 12, after Lazarus has been raised, that they are going into, uh, into um, Jerusalem. And Thomas says something to the effect, um, let's go also that we may die with him. They know he's coming close to death, but they do not understand the significance of it yet. So one matter underscored here is the theme of spiritual blindness. We've seen it time and again. We saw it with blind Bartimaeus. The disciples in Galilean crowd, many among them, have seen Jesus' miracles. They have heard his teaching, but they're still spiritually blind. They do not understand. Listen, men and women by nature, that is to say, fallen in Adam, that's what we mean when we say by nature, are stark blind. All of us by nature are blind. A blind man can learn to talk about the light, but it's borrowed. He's never seen the light. And this is the standard condition of all who are outside of Christ. They are offended when you tell them, I see the light. If our entire country were made up of blind people, they would be offended by the few who really insist that they can see. For the blindness and the seeing of which we speak is the spiritual blindness and spiritual sight of which the scriptures speak about the new birth. Spiritual sight is the work of God. He causes light to shine in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul put it. Preaching the gospel is the instrument of sight, but it must be breathed into the blind man's spiritual ear by the Holy Spirit, illuminating the whole man so that he might see. 
So Christians unhappily sometimes can walk in relative darkness, but they have eyes and they see when the light returns. The return of light means nothing to a blind man or woman, but the Christian has seen the Lord. Nothing can take that away. Are you spiritually blind or do you see? The crowd shouted, Hosanna. They offered their praise, but they did not understand and they did not see. The disciples have walked with him. At this point, they see only a little. Do you see? Do you understand? Have you been born from above? The entrance of the king then was a kingly entrance. The entrance of the king was a misperceived entrance, but also, thirdly, it was an entrance of happy portent. That is to say, it pointed to something really wonderful. What was Jesus' intention? Why did he enter into Jerusalem this way? Well, let's connect this question with some of what we have seen thus far. You know, when pilgrims entered into Jerusalem, they entered on foot. Jesus does not enter on foot. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9. The entrance, the king comes on an animal associated with messianic prophecy, and there is jubilation and and praise, Psalm 118. And clearly Jesus is intimating his messiahship. But as we have seen at this time, his messiahship is still veiled. What will now be seen as we move through these chapters when he enters into Jerusalem? The way of suffering, that the messiah is a suffering messiah. What will now be seen is Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha. And the present Jewish view of the Messiah was largely political. Jesus totally obliterates that view. He begins his glorious reign by being lifted up on a cross. Who ever heard of a king beginning his reign by being lifted up on a cross, his nails and feet on, on a cross, his hands and feet nailed to a cross, his side pierced with a spear. Who ever heard of a king beginning his reign in that way? Ah, but this king is like no other king. He must take away our sins, and that is what others at this point in the narrative do not see. And so God became flesh, dwelt among us, and there he goes into Jerusalem on the fold of an ass. And as Luther said, Jesus at this point is the beggar king. Look, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed colt, on an improvised saddle. And he was acclaimed by people that did not understand why he was entering into Jerusalem. So through all of this, Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. But I will save you in a way that you do not expect they all should have known Isaiah 53, but they are blind to it at this point. And I think he says something by entering that could only be understood by his disciples later. That is to say, the key to understanding, and this is the happy portent of the entry, the key to understanding, that to which it ultimately points, the key of understanding his entry into Jerusalem 
must be placed into the hands of his disciples, the apostles, in order that they understand what is happening here on this day when he enters into Jerusalem and when he stands before Pilate and when he goes to the cross. And what is that key? The key that must be placed into their hands so that they understand his entry into Jerusalem and all of these things. The key placed later into the hands of the disciples is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The interpretative key to his coming, to his ministry, and entrance into Jerusalem, and the, and, and, and the, the whole meaning of the cross will be his bodily resurrection from the tomb. And then it all falls into place. And then the disciples, in essence, say to themselves, now we understand. Now we understand why he came. Now we understand the Old Testament prophecies. Now we understand Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. And Paul will summarize the whole issue when he will write by divine inspiration in Romans 1, 2 through 4, which he had promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is the event that clarified their vision by the Lord's work in their hearts and clarifies ours also when the Holy Spirit within us gives us eyes to see. That is where all of this is leading. Yes, to his suffering. Yes, the Passion Week. Yes, his suffering before the leaders. Yes, his being, his being whipped, his, his being mistreated, his, the horror of the cross. Yes, but also to his resurrection from the dead. That's the key, and for us too, the resurrection is just as much the key as it was for the disciples. The resurrection opens for us too the Old Testament. The resurrection opens for us too those Old Testament prophecies. The resurrection demonstrates and declares his victory, the victory of the cross. The resurrected Christ is the one in whom we place our faith. The resurrection determines our Christian living. The resurrection determines our future. This was the key that could be placed into the hands of the disciples when it had taken place and only then. And it would take place and it did take place in time and in space and in history. And the preaching of the disciples, the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus, as Sparrow Simpson wrote somewhere, can be accounted for by objective reality and nothing else. This is the solid rock beneath our feet. But his entrance into Jerusalem, turning the gem, looking at one more facet, was also an instructive entrance an instructive entrance. What does Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem teach us? Let me focus on one thing. It teaches us that Christ came 
down, down, down into utter humiliation. And from that point of utter humiliation, he was raised up to glory. And that pattern must be reduplicated in some way in the life of his church. Jesus' glory at this point is veiled. His cross must precede his crown. He is king, but he does not appear to be. And he is always, always recognized by faith alone. And I want to say something about this pattern. This pattern of humiliation, exaltation, humiliation, exaltation, this pattern must be the pattern of church life. It stands out over against the quest for outward success, which should not be our goal, worldly success. It stands over against the viewpoint of triumphalism, wanting the expression of triumph before the time, forgetting that the road is hard, that the way of the church is the way of humiliation. Examples when the church is is, is striving to be political broker in culture. Now, I'm not saying the church should not address moral issues in the culture, especially as they come up in the text. Certainly the church is responsible to do so. But nonetheless, the church is not called to serve any kingdom but his kingdom. We forget that God intends suffering for us, becoming thoroughly preoccupied with escaping rather than knowing God in the suffering. And this is what led to the politicized, worldly church of Rome from which the reformers broke. And it happens time after time after time in the history of the church. And I think the reason for this is because we individually as believers in Christ in large measure have forgotten that this humiliation and exaltation is also the pattern that must be found in our lives. The pattern of humiliation and service. We have nothing to offer the world, nothing that the world thinks is important. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass, a borrowed saddle, receiving praises from people who didn't understand him, utterly humiliated. All we have for the world is the message of a crucified Jew. All a crucified Jew who satisfied the wrath of God on the cross and rose from the dead. And this world system could care less unless the Spirit of God break in. Indeed, this world system is offended by it. For us to try to live in the triumph that is to come before the time, I don't mean anticipating it, that we should do. Live in the reality of its coming, that we should do. But in a way that fails to recognize that to be drawn in our hearts and lives and consciences also must be the pattern of humiliation before comes the exaltation, is to set aside the work of the Holy Spirit that must take place in every believer's life if we're going to walk faithfully with Him. Now in verse 11, we come to the end of this triumphal entry, and we read, and he entered Jerusalem 
and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he simply went into the temple. Evidently, the crowds are silent now. Things must be quiet. And he looks around. He just surveys the temple. He's now in his city. The temple belongs to him. Everything about the temple points to him. He's going to come there tomorrow, and he will cleanse the temple. But now he just looks. He surveys. The place where we'll begin, his utter humiliation, the place where he will suffer and bleed and die for us sinners. Edersheim, Alfred Edersheim says of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, taking into his mind not only Mark but other passages in the Gospels, says, Jesus alone was silent and sad among this excited multitude. The marks of the tears he had wept over Jerusalem still on his cheek. He spake not, but only looked around about as if to view the field on which he was to suffer and die. So as we move on in these chapters, I want to ask that you think about something. I would like to ask that you think about the truth, the fact, the reality that Jesus Christ is the only human being because he was God in the flesh, truly God and truly man. He is the only human being who has ever chosen to die. You say, Pastor, that can't be. There are suicides. There are those who have, have given their lives on the battlefield, sacrificed themselves for others. No, I want you to get my point. My point is this. He is the only person who could have known the full meaning of death. He is the only person, God, the holy God, who has been offended by sin, who understands the deep aggravation, ugliness, abhorrence of sin. He is the only one who could really understand from the depths of his soul what it would take to redeem lost sinners from their sins. He was the only one who really understood what the fall of Adam and the death of the human race, what it meant. He is the only one who has ever chosen to die in the full, deep, real sense of the word. And believer, he did it for you. That's where Mark goes from the entrance into Jerusalem. That's what death really means. That's where Mark is leading. But also, all of this anticipates his resurrection and his ascension into heaven that took place on the Mount of Olives. He ascended on high from the Mount of Olives. And it was right here, near or perhaps at Bethpage, 
just the place where Jesus began his entry into Jerusalem, humbly on a borrowed colt, a borrowed saddle, so that he might die for sinners. And one Dutch New Testament scholar has observed, after his passion and death, this is the site from which he begins his royal entry into the heavenly Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem to die. He is buried. He is raised. And from this very place where he started his entry into Jerusalem, he ascends into the heavenly Jerusalem with the promise that he will bring you there too. And from there he intercedes. From there he will come again. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.